0: Today's scripture is uh, Psalm 8, so if you'll turn there and stand for the reading of God's Word. To the choir master, according to the Gittith, a psalm of David. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens, out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have put all things under His feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is Your name in all the earth! This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thanks be to God. Well, Church, we have been in our study series in the Psalms this summer. And uh, last week we were in Psalm 2. And so uh, you might have expected this week for us to open to Psalm 3. So I feel like a word of justification is needed uh, as to why we're in Psalm 8 this week. Um, The Psalms are arranged as a hymn book. uh, It would really have been the songs of the people of God uh, really before hymns existed in in the modern day. So much like you'd have a hymn book today which is organized and structured in many different kinds of ways. The Psalter is organized and structured uh, similarly. It has kind of a design behind it. And so what that means is when we went through Psalm 1 and 2, uh, Psalm 3 is, yes, the next Psalm, but it's not like a narrative where if you skip from chapter 3 to chapter 8 that you're going to be missing a lot of details, right? Psalm 1 and 2 in the Psalter, actually, uh, they operate as kind of the gatekeepers of the Psalter which means that they give us the framework for how, to work, how we're to understand every other psalm, hence why we did those back-to-back weeks. And then this week, it, we're kind of uh, open season. We can go to whatever psalm we need to now that we have the framework from Psalm 1 and 2 in mind. So just a quick recap of what that framework is. Remember, Psalm 1 it tells us about these two different ways to life, these two different me uh, paths that are before a man, and, and you must choose. You must choose which way you will go, either to hear the voice of God, to meditate upon his word, and to follow his instructions of righteousness. As Psalm 1 says, this is the tree that is planted beside a stream of living water, which will yield its fruit in season. This is one path. And the other path is to stand in the counsel of the wicked and uh, sit in the seat of scoffers and walk in their paths and see how that turns out. And the Psalm, of course, evaluates that as, uh, well, you will be like chaff in such a case, blown to and fro by the wind. Psalm 2 then uh, grounds the claims of Psalm 1 about these two paths in the objective sovereignty of Jesus over all things in the universe. He is Lord of all. All things have been put in subjection under his feet, and he is the one to whom we owe praise and allegiance and obedience. And Psalm 2 both comments on the fact that humans are in rebellion, and ultimately that that doesn't really threaten or uh, take away from God's sovereignty in any meaningful sense. And so with those two gatekeeping principles in mind, we can turn to any other psalm in the rest of the Psalter and recognize it's commenting on life and and commenting on reality in light of the fact that God puts before us the paths of life and also that he is the one who orchestrates and oversees and is the refuge of all his people. Such that when we we come to a psalm like this and we see when it mentions in verse 2 that there are foes that God has, Well, Psalm 2 already introduced us to the fact that God has foes, so this is not news for us and it's already established in the past that that is the case. And similarly, when we read here in these verses that uh, God is the one who we ought to praise, his name is majestic in all the earth, well, that doesn't surprise us because Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 have gone about establishing the fact that he is the one to whom, whom we owe praise. So the rest of the Psalter is just gonna comment on what life is like here and now in light of the fact that God is king and we owe our obedience to him and that he puts these paths before us to ask us how we sh- how should we then live in light of his kingdom. So what Psalm 8 does is it's going to go in and reflect on humanity and namely uh, what it means to be a human in a fallen world and what does that mean for us as we relate to our sovereign king. Well, the psalmist here writes, David is that humanity has a peculiar glory, uh, a certain kind of dignity, which is linked to God's creation of mankind. Humanity has a particular glory and dignity that is linked to the fact that God created man. And if you do away with God's creation of man, you also do away with that particular glory, and that particular dignity that mankind has. This is why so much of the world around us will begin to make sense when you understand that the worldview of culture and society today, and even of many Christians who have grown up discipled by such ideas and thoughts, struggles to understand why we live in a world where people scorn others, kill others, hate others and feel no remorse or guilt for doing those kinds of things. Where do we go for our understanding of human beings having dignity and worth? If not to God's word. And as we unpack this psalm, I will try to show you that, in fact, there is nowhere else to turn besides the very word of God, because no other explanation can answer the question about man's dignity in the way that scripture can. So Psalm 1 starts off. Uh, in verse 1 of the psalm, to the choir master according to the gittit. Now, you don't want to skip that part because this is, it seems introductory to us, but it's actually, it's part of the original text. It's actually verse 1 in the Hebrew of the psalm. So verse 2 uh, would be, O Lord, our Lord. But what it's giving us is introductory details about how the psalm is used and, and structured. And in this case, the psalm seems to be a psalm of praise, which is associated with a certain kind of either musical instrument or musical style called the gittith. Now, no one knows exactly what the gittith is or who plays it or if it's an instrument or if it's a kind of music like a folk music or a pop song or something like that. No one knows exactly what style of music it really is. Only that the psalm is telling us it's to the choir master, so it's going to be sung for public worship consumption, and it's to be done in this style. Now, the fact that we've lost the style probably causes us to see a little bit more dimly the beauty and the the rhythm and the poetry of the psalm, but it does not in any way lose the message of what the psalm gets after. Because the psalm then immediately begins in verse two, your English text, verse one, with, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Now here is what we would say uh, a claim. a claim of glory, a claim of worship, a claim of reverence, which the psalmist says is owed to God. In this case, David, when he writes, he says that God's name is majestic and glorious and praiseworthy in all of the world. In all the earth, God's name is to be glorified. Now, this is an exclusive kind of claim because not everyone would agree with this kind of claim. And so actually, if you observe the structure of the psalm, you'll notice the claim is made in verse 1 in your English text, and then in verse 9, that claim is repeated. And in between verse 1 and verse 9, David goes about establishing why he thinks it is the case that we can worship God's name as majestic and glorious. So introduces it, defends it, and then reasserts it with additional confidence, we would say with additional zeal, now having explored these various reasons for why God's name is majestic and worthy of praise in the world. So it's on this journey that we now turn, and we must first understand uh, David's use uh, or structure of the text as he he lays it out. And so the first part of this structure is he, he associates God with the sovereign one. Now, in your, in your English Bible, you'll, you'll see this as, O Lord, our Lord. And those of you who are careful readers of the English text will have observed this, that one of the lords is capitalized, or it's in all caps, and one of them is capitalized with the other letters being lowercase. And when the English translators are, what they're trying to communicate to you is there's two different terms here being used to describe who God is. The first term, the one that is capitalized, L-O-R-D, is the covenant name of God, we would say this is Yahweh. So it is his personal, covenantal name. And the second term, our Lord, is the term Adonai, which is the term that refers to the Sovereign One. So uh, Psalm 1 would, would read to a Hebrew listener like this, uh, Yahweh is Sovereign. O Lord, our Lord, or O Yahweh, the Sovereign One, How majestic is your name in all the earth? Now, this doesn't strike us uh, who live in a monotheistic culture uh, in in the Christian West. Well, uh, those of us who are Christians have grown up in a monotheistic culture. That doesn't strike us as strange, except for, well, in the Jewish culture, there's polytheism all around them. They have Baal worship. They have worship of all kinds of deities and gods. The Babylonians have multiple gods they serve. Everyone's got a god for this and a god for that. And so what David here claims is that not only is Yahweh his personal God, but Yahweh is the one who is to be praised all over the world. So the personal God of the covenant people of Israel, Yahweh, is the sovereign one, and he's the one whose name is majestic in all the earth. And the second assertion in verse 1 is that it is God's name which is majestic. Now, we probably understand what that means. He's not just saying that the very letters themselves are majestic, but that the name of God refers to his attributes, his character, his deeds, his works. All of that is encompassed in his name. And you can even see this today. If you, if you were to go up to someone and ask them, what do you think about Jesus? You're, you're using Jesus as a title or a name, which refers to a whole host of other things that go behind that his activity, his character, what people believe about him, what people say about him. All of that is behind the name. And so when David here says that God's name is majestic, that's probably shorthand for all of his activities, deeds, and actions related to the covenant people of Israel, who he's revealed himself to be, and all that he is. This is all majestic. His name simply stands in as a representation for how we shorthand summarize his glory and his activity. So Yahweh is sovereign, and it is his name which is majestic in all the earth. And then he's going to do two things in the psalm, and uh, there's two divisions, one shorter and one longer. The first division is to show that creation is testifying to this glory. That's the closing line of verse 1. And then he's going to show the goodness of God towards humanity in particular, and that's verses 3 through 8. So the closing line of verse 1, you, that is Yahweh, have set your glory above the heavens. So God has designed the world in such a way that it testifies about his glory. Now those of you who have your New Testament read uh, might immediately connect this to Romans chapter 1, where Paul says that the very creation of preaches about the knowledge of God such that man is without excuse to deny him proper worship. David says it here. You have set your glory above the heavens. God's glory is manifest in his creation. It is projected and pronounced and displayed in his creative work. And his creation does indeed testify to his glory. Now we in the West in the 21st century have a huge difficulty actually recognizing creation as the very glory of God because we live post what is called the enlightenment. We live in a time and in a place that is rationalistic and very naturalistic, which means our culture and our world and even many Christians have grown up believing that what we see in the natural world is all that there is. And so when we see a tree... We don't see the glory of God in designing a tree. We see, oh, that's a seed that grew in the ground, and there's all these chemical processes which grow a tree, and it's photosynthesis, and yeah, I get all that. We don't see it as glorious. But all of that design, the photosynthesis of the tree, the growth of the tree, the ecology of the environment which the tree exists in to even grow to begin with, the very fact that it's one tree among many species of trees, all of that knowledge shouldn't remove the fact that God is glorified in nature, but it actually should enhance the glory that we see in God's creation. In the same way, if I was to go to a car manufacturer or to a Volkswagen dealer, and I was to go to one of their nicer motor vehicles, I could observe it externally from the outside and say, this is a well-designed vehicle. And if I had enough knowledge to open up the hood and to look at all the engines and the mechanics and how all of those things function together, that should not remove my awe for the design and the intentional functionality of the car, but rather it should increase my appreciation for the functionality of the one who designed it. In the same way, those of us who study the natural world, the human body, all of the glorious testimonies of God's truth that are in creation, our increased learning and knowledge should amplify, not restrain, the fact that we see God's glory in every cell, in every creature, every aspect of the natural world it all attests to god's glorious goodness in creation and this is by design god has actually made it so the earth bears his fingerprints the heavens bear his fingerprints and with all of the advanced technology that we have to see even into the cosmos and deep space it bears witness to the glory of god in his designing of these things And so God's glory is displayed in creation. But more than that, it's displayed in weakness. And this is what we see in verse 2. Out of the mouths of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. God has chosen, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, what is weak in the world to shame the strong. He has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise and he has done so from the beginning. It is even, as the psalmist says here in verse 2, out of the mouths of babies and infants that God establishes the strength of his might. And that is over and against the foes, his enemies. And, and what's interesting in the psalm, you might have read it and you might not know what it means, the, somehow what, the babies, what comes out of the mouths of babies and infants quiets the enemies of God and the avenger. It stills their rebellion. So the enemies of God, which we met in Psalm 2, the ones who rebel against the king, they are silenced in Psalm 8 verse 2 by the mouths of babies and infants. Now what on earth does that mean? Because we might think about that and say, well, babies don't say much. Children don't, you know, they don't argue for the glory of God in creation. They just exist and they speak. And so what is David getting at here? Well, there's a number of things that David could mean, but one of the things that is probably underlying his thought is the fact that God is pleased to take all of the might and strength of the world and show just how empty and weak it is. I'll give you a couple of examples in Scripture how we see this. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, has much of the world that is known under his dominion and under his rule He sets up an image so that the people can bow down and worship the image and thus pay homage to the king. And he's bothered by the fact that three eunuchs from Israel won't also bow down to the statue. And he's so bothered by it, he goes out of his way to make sure they're punished for their refusal to bow down. God chose what is foolish and weak to show Nebuchadnezzar all of his strength and all of his power can be very quickly robbed from him simply by the fact that a couple of Jewish eunuchs won't bow down to his statue. Out of the mouths of the weak, out of the mouths of babies and infants, God established his strength in the face of that hostility. But this psalm is actually quoted by Jesus on his triumphal entry in Matthew's gospel. So if you would turn with me to Matthew 21, We will actually see exactly where this is used and the full-fledged climax of its meaning. So to set the scene for you, Matthew chapter 21, we'll be looking starting in verse 14. What's just happened is Jesus has gone through his entry into Jerusalem Everyone has praised him, thinking the king is coming. The king is here to establish power. One of the first things that he does when he enters Jerusalem is he cleanses the temple for those who are buying and selling uh, wrongly on its grounds. And then there are a number of people who come to the temple to be healed by Jesus. And this is where we pick up in verse 14 of Matthew 21. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out of the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. You can read angry, perplexed, all of the rest. And they, the chief priests and the scribes, said to him, do you hear what these are saying, referring to the children? And Jesus, in a very short response, says to them, as he says often in Matthew's gospel, have you not read? He says, and Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read what Psalm 8 says when it says, Out of the mouths of infants and nursing babes you have prepared praise? And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. So Jesus drops the Psalm 8 quotation on the Pharisees and there's no response from the Pharisees, no additional dialogue. We can see as Matthew writes it, his point is the accusation was silenced. You get the picture. They don't even respond. They don't rebuttal. There's no attempt to kill him, nothing like that right here. They're just silenced after he quotes Psalm 8. Well, Psalm 8 told us out of the mouths of infants and babes, the accusers, the those who stand against God, are silenced by the testimony of the weak. So how is it applied when Jesus quotes it? Well, the children are the ones in the temple. Everyone's watching him do this healing. Everyone's watching him do these miracles. Everyone just saw his triumphal entry. And it's noteworthy that it's the children not any other group, who's singing his praises saying, Hosanna to the son of David. So the children are proclaiming or testifying about who Jesus is rightly. And that is to the frustration and the great anger of the ruling class, the leaders of Israel who are actually the enemies of God. And then in the light of all this, Jesus applies it and says, actually, this is exactly what Psalm 82 is talking about when I take what is weak in the world, those who are infants and nursing babes, and out of their mouths the praise that they utter, I am honored and the wicked are silenced. Now just a brief comment, because some of you might have noticed this, that in Psalm 8, verse 2, it doesn't say you have prepared praise, but in Matthew 21, when Jesus quotes it, it does. So how do we account for this difference? Well, Jesus in Matthew 21 is quoting out of the Greek translation of the Old Testament where they are trying to interpret what is meant by out of the mouths of infants and babes you speak or you proclaim. And it's a difficult thing to even translate into English from Hebrew. And so in the Greek translation, they try to interpret this by saying out of the mouths of infants and babes, what's coming out of their mouth? You have prepared praise. So they're trying to conclude the thought of what's coming out of the mouths of infants and babes. And that's certainly in line with the thrust of what Psalm 82 is saying because it says out of the mouths of infants and babes you silence those who speak against you and it is the very praise of these children which silences the accusers it's the very praise of them which causes the frustration. And so it's a totally in line quotation, Jesus isn't adding anything to the text. He's just quoting out of the translation available in his day to relay the information to the scribes. So in one sense, Psalm chapter 8 verse 2 that God's glory is seen not only in creation, but also in the weak parts of creation. It just tells us about how God is pleased to work in this world. And ultimately, as Jesus quotes it, it even, it even uh, culminates in the very work of him's, his son to come, and not to come as a king in the first round, but to come as a servant to die on a cross. And in that, the foes and the enemies and all those who are looking for strength to respect it instead are put to shame by the children who can recognize the king in their midst when the chief priests and the scribes and all of their learning cannot recognize the Messiah to whom all the scriptures are to point. So Jesus truly quotes Psalm 8, and we see the beauty of it when it says, Out of the mouths of babes and infants you have established strength against your foes to still the enemy and to still the avenger. Now, this is true today as well when, as Christians, we embrace our frailty and our weakness. and We testify about God's glory anyway. We are in this world, and what this world tells us is in order to be heard, we need to be respected. In order to be respected, we need to have strength and renown and reputation and all these things. And God actually is pleased to use all of the weak things in this world to establish his might and glory. So as Christians, we should not seek to be scorned by this world. That'll happen naturally. But we should certainly not seek renown, reputation, all these things as though that is what God requires for us to be successful witnesses about him in the world. If God can use babies and infants to steal the accuser, it's certainly reasons that he can use poorly educated adults and young adults and all the rest to do his bidding and to do his work. We don't need the world to look at us as people of intelligence. We don't need the world to look at us as people of renown and respect and notoriety. We simply exist as weak and feeble tools in the hands of our God. This does not mean we should seek weakness as though to scorn opportunities that the Lord puts in front of us is a noble thing. But it simply means that we, in fact, are weak. And we shouldn't pretend that we're not, as though that somehow will earn the world our respect. So, Psalm 8 has established so far for us that David thinks God's name is worthy of praise in all the earth, and ultimately that that praise is established in nature and even in babies. But this is as far as his apologetic use of the psalm goes, meaning this is as far as he's engaging with worldview claims. And from here on out, he's going to talk about the dignity and the goodness of God in all of this creation and how that dignity is very narrowly expressed, very beautifully expressed in the chief of his creation, mankind. Verse 3, when I look at your heavens and the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? and the son of man that you would care for him. This is the question that every worldview asks. What do we do with mankind? And how do we explain our feelings, our sense of morality, our desire for knowledge and learning and relationships and connection? How do we explain all these things? And so David here asks, when I look at all of the glory of the heavens, all of the other things you've created, the moon, the stars, We might add to that the list of our own experiences, the beautiful works of the world, the mountains like Mount Everest, the uh, canyons, the deepest parts of the oceans, the planets which we can now see and identify. When we look at all of this world and all of this creation, the question is right to ask, who am I in all of this creation? Are you just a meaningless speck of dust on a rock Floating through space, that's all that you are and all that you mean. David asked the question, what is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you would care for him? So even in David's question asking, there's implicit in this, what we would say is the Christian view of how God relates to humanity. Namely, that God is mindful of man and that God does care for man. You see, both of those things are true, even as David asked the question, for what reason? And that's very different than how we ask these questions today, as, at least as far as I experienced it when I was in college, uh, studying biology and chemistry and, and physics and all these things. The questions were never asked with a sensitivity towards God is mindful of man. The questions are usually framed, look at all the cosmos, look at all the stars, look at all the world, look at all the math and science that testifies to these realities humans are just in this system as well part of the system maybe a smarter part of the system but part of the system nonetheless nothing distinct really maybe we beat the other great apes to the punch in the evolutionary race but that's really all we are we're just the first of the intelligent beings not there's nothing really special about that it was really by happenstance and chance that all these things came about. So God isn't mindful of man because there is no God. And the universe doesn't much care for man because, well, man is nothing in the scope of the vast extent of the cosmos. And so what, what comes of a worldview that starts with human beings are this, in this system? Well, you get a couple of options. One of them would be the option I think that is most demonstrated by Well, the the company PETA, if you're familiar with them. Their worldview is something like sentient life is valuable. And so that means not just humans, but also dogs and fish and cats and and all the animals. But actually, they're on the same playing field as humans in terms of value. So that we should protest when animals are euthanized, or we we should get upset when animals are eaten for food at the dinner table over Thanksgiving. We should get upset about all these things because that would be equivalent to doing the same to a human. Because humans are part of this system, so what we are gonna treat humans like we treat all animals. And therefore, we should give respect and dignity to all animals. That's their conclusion. But we might actually ask the question the other way. Why don't we just treat humans like we treat the current animals? Why do we have to treat animals with more respect because humans have this respect? Wouldn't that also mean that it would be just as right if we treated humans with less respect to bring them on the same playing field as all the animals. You see, science could give us this data, but it can't interpret it for us. And so the hopeful conclusion is we should treat other animal species better. But actually, the conclusion of Nazi scientists was if humans are cogs in the wheel, like all these other animals, well, then we can treat them like animals. And there's actually nothing inconsistent within that worldview about how they behaved and what they did. In fact, there's nothing inconsistent in, in in the worldview to say, well, that means white people can enslave black people. Or we can take children and sell them into sex trafficking for our own profit. Or we can kill other people because we want to and we hate them. There's nothing in a naturalistic worldview that can actually stop any of those conclusions. So if I was to ask you the question, what's wrong, what's wrong with treating humans like common commodities, killing them, disposing of them, abusing them, what's wrong with slavery? What's wrong with rape? What's wrong with all those things? If you bristle at all those questions, it's because you have the morality of God inside of you, the very testimony of God's creation in you to say, it is wrong, I know it's wrong. And now the question is, how do we explain that it's wrong? Because even those who have naturalistic worldviews cannot even deny the fact that there is something wrong about what the Nazis did to the Jews in World War II. There is something wrong about the enslaving of black peoples for centuries. There is something wrong about children being sold into sex trafficking. There is something wrong about that. Unless, you get all the way to the end of Romans 1, where he says, unless you suppress the truth, in which case God gives you over to your foolishness. But the truth is evident. The truth is there. The conscience is there. And even you know and I know that these things are wrong. How do we explain it? Because it is God who has created man. Man is not a product of random chance. God has endowed man with his own image. He has put his glory into mankind. And we actually have an eyewitness testimony in Genesis 1. God created them male and female. In the image of God, he created them they are his glory they are his image they have dignity they have value so you can't mistreat them and actually that gets applied in Genesis 6 where he says you actually can't kill people because the image of God is in people so if you kill a man you forfeit your own life you can't just dispose of human beings like that human beings have dignity they have worth and only Christianity can actually reason why So God is mindful of man. God does care for him. But we might ask the question, why God? Why why were you pleased to put your glory into mankind? How does God put his glory into mankind? He does it in the garden. He does it in the perfect creation. And we might say, well, what about the fall? Doesn't that mar the image of God in man? It does. But it doesn't wholly remove the image of God from man. When, when mankind falls in the garden, Adam and Eve sin and they, they fall, it explains the fact that the image is distorted, but it actually doesn't remove the image altogether. Cain is still held responsible for killing Abel. The people who live in that time, well, during Sodom and Gomorrah, are held accountable for the fact that they would do such vile acts to other people. It's because man bears God's image, even if it's a marred image they still carry the glory and the dignity that God has put in them initially. And we experience the marred image of man all the time. We experience people who are sinners, who actually rebel against God, and who can actually do kind things to one another, who can love one another, who can respect one another, who can show honor, and who can be hospitable, and who can be kind. This is the image of God which shows itself in how we relate to other people. But the image of God just isn't how we relate to other people, it's also how we relate to God. It's how we relate to ourselves. And ultimately, it's how we relate to the world around us. The image of God tells us that when we interact with other image bearers, we ought to treat them a certain way. It tells us when we interact with God, we are to treat him as the one who gave us this image, meaning we get from him the cues about how we best live it out. As we relate to ourselves, it means we can't disparage ourselves because God has put his image within us as well. We are image bearers. Thus, self-harm and negative thoughts and all kinds of anxiousness and, and self-hatred is, is cast aside in the Christian worldview because God has put his image in you, Christian, as well. And also, it tells us how we relate to the world around us. So to address the worldview of PETA, we might say humans actually are the stewards of creation. They are over creation. If I could skip just briefly to verse 7, as it says, all sheep and oxen and birds and beasts of the field, the birds of heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas, all of these things are under the dominion and stewardship of mankind. So what is man that God is mindful of him? Well, man is really nothing without God's being mindful of him. Man is nothing without God caring for him. Mankind is nothing without the image of God being put in him. But that God cares, that God has a tender look upon his creatures, most notably his, his beloved creatures, humanity. We do have value and worth for that reason. And now here the psalmist comments on verses 5 and 6 saying, what a glorious thing this is. You have made him for a little while lower than the heavenly beings or the angels, some translations might say. And you have crowned him with glory and honor. So even though mankind is lower than the angels, lower than the heavenly beings, only for a little while, only on this side of eternity is that true. And even in that lowering of mankind in that way, they are still crowned with glory and with honor. They are crowned with the imago Dei, the image of God in them. And you have given to man the dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. Mankind is the rightful steward of creation at large, which explains the commission God gives to Adam in the garden, and it repeats it here in Psalm 8, re- reflecting the fact that this is a mandate actually given to all image bearers of God, to subdue the earth, to be fruitful and multiply it, to fill it. That's actually not done away with in the garden or in the fall. It's actually repeated here in Psalm 8 and even into the Great Commission, Go therefore making disciples of all nations. So we are to be stewards and even those who bring the world into submission, into subjection under our feet. But these verses, just like verse, eight of, or sorry, verse 2 of Psalm 8, uh, these verses also are applied to Jesus in the New Testament. The, this language of, you have made him for a little while lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him, crowned him with glory and honor, that is true of mankind who exists on creation, Uh, And and would they have lived perfectly, they would have ascended much more quickly to be co-regents with God over his creation. But in the fall, we, we delay that process quite a bit. Actually, we delay it until the second Adam comes to restore the image of God in us. To make right what has been broken. To teach us how to live so that we are to be imitators of Christ. We are to imitate his activity because that is to imitate God. And in order to reestablish the image of God, well, God takes on human flesh, becomes man, and shows us how we ought to have done it in the first place. He descends from his heavenly abode, actually taking on the form of flesh so that he is, for a little while, lower than the heavenly beings. For a little while, he is lower than the angels. He has a finite body, which is weak and fleeting, and he can get hungry, he can get tired, he can be famished. He can be weak. For a little while, Jesus actually embraces this aspect of humanity, their lowliness. But this lowliness, what we say is Christ's humiliation, does not mean that we are dishonored. It's actually the path to honor. It's the path to his glorification. So let's look briefly, if you would, with me at Hebrews chapter 2, uh, where we see these verses quoted where the author of Hebrews begins to establish the glory of God in man and ultimately the one man, Christ Jesus. I'll begin reading, not in verse 6, but we need the full context, so I'll begin reading in verse 2 of chapter 2. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how should we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested by those who heard, meaning Jesus came in the flesh, he preached this message, And the apostles and those who heard repeated and propagated this message forward. Verse 4, God also bore witness by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by the gifts of the Holy Spirit, which were distributed according to his will. So he attests to Jesus' witness. He attests to Jesus' truth by the accompanying signs and works and miracles, which the apostles and Jesus does. And then he tells us why this message was so keenly declared to mankind in this way by both angels, by the Lord himself, by his apostles, and by the Holy Spirit's accompanying truth. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking, but it has been testified somewhere, that somewhere is Psalm 8, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You have made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection Under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection under him, he left nothing outside of his control. And at present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him for who, for a little while, was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering and death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Now, I'm tempted to read the rest of this chapter in Hebrews 2, but I won't. In Hebrews 2, the argument is, while mankind is to bear this image well, to be the one who is crowned with glory and honor, Jesus, the perfect man, lives this out perfectly. He's the one who is crowned perfectly with glory and honor, not through his kingly rule and reign, but actually through his suffering and through his death. It is in this way that he is crowned with glory and honor, And why does he have to bear this image of man perfectly? So that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. His perfect image bearing means that that perfect image can dwell upon you and I. So when we speak about the righteousness of Christ, we don't just speak about his moral activity, but we speak about the totality of the image that he bore as being a stand-in for the weak image that we bear. And as Christians who have a new spirit within us, we are called to imitate this glorious image that Christ bears on our behalf because he has earned it, he has modeled it, and he has done it. And this psalm is quoted here in Hebrews 2. And actually in Hebrews 2, he's going to go on to explain the second half of it. But in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul also quotes this psalm when he speaks about the new creation and the resurrection. So if you'll turn to 1 Corinthians 15, that'll be the last place we turn. And you'll see where these verses are going and concluding. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 15. The specific quotation is in verse 27. But as always, we need context, so we will be reading from verse 24. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God to the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Now, where might Paul get the idea that Jesus has to put all his enemies under his feet Verse 26, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. So Jesus is going to put death itself under his feet. Where's Paul getting these ideas from? Verse 27, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he he is expected who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who puts all things in subjection under him, so that God may be all in all. So Jesus is the perfect image bearer, the perfect man. He is to be the one who puts all things in subjection under his feet. The last thing to go is death. So this is a future reality that we're talking about here. But his subjection, his dominion of all things, is being worked out ever since his ascension. And ultimately, at that last hour, when he puts death itself in subjection under his feet, he takes all of those things, as we see in the the scene in Daniel 7, he takes them to the throne, So that God is the one who is really the one who all these things are in subject to. And so then Paul concludes that God may be all in all. So the dominion of Jesus over all things is actually an extension of the dominion of God over all things, which is what mankind was supposed to be the whole time. For Adam to rule in the garden was not for Adam to rule in place of God, but it was Adam to rule as an extension of God's rule. Such that when Jesus rules as a man it is an extension of God's rules as deity now obviously Christ is both divine and human we have both of those aspects at play but this is also true of humans as well that is our uh, culmination in glory that we will actually be stewards and kings and queens over the earth we will be the ones who reign and rule not as our own kings but as those who are the extension of the one true king. So what Psalm 8 is doing is it's telling us, it's giving us a snapshot of the glory of man, but not just a snapshot of what we could be or what we are now, but ultimately what we will be. When we subdue the world today, we get a a dim taste of what it is to be in that position one day. When we are the ones who bear God's image now, even if we do it poorly, we get a taste of what it will be to bear the image rightly and perfectly in glory. When it says that he has put all things under his feet, that is actually the the culmination of human history that we would actually be the ones who rule and reign as the extension of God himself in this world. So that all things in the sea, all things under the sea, all things in the created universe will be subject to mankind as an extension of God's creative genius. So when we look at creation around us and we look at mankind bearing the image of God, we see the very works and glory of God, which has been pleased to take weak things and cause his name to be glorified in these weak things. So then David, I think, rightly concludes here in verse 9 of Psalm 8. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name, in all the earth. It is through these words that he has both stated his case, proved his case, and concluded his case. And since this is a song, it is the very case that we will be singing as we conclude our time together in worship uh, with actually these words verbatim being spoken in the songs we are about to sing. So with that, let me close in prayer, and we will get into communion. Father and God, we thank you for your word to us, how it strengthens us and encourages us and inspires dignity within us. Lord, we confess that you are the one who establishes all things. You are the foundation of our morality. You are the foundation of our strength. You are the foundation of our dignity. And Lord, we marvel at the glory that you have put on display in us. Not that we are high and lofty, but that you care for us so, that your unique creative glory is put on display. Lord, we pray that we would rightly love others who bear your image, that we would rightly treat our own bodies well, which also bears the image, and we would aspire to rightly see the world and the created universe as it is, as your handiwork, as your design, as your creative goodness. We thank you for all these truths which have just been read and to which we now assent our minds in praise. We thank you and we praise you. Amen.